Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can grab it. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So we continue uh, studying the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus this year um, here at New Hope. If, if you're a guest and I haven't got to meet you, my name's Rob. I'm glad that you're here. would love to get to meet you and your family. Um, and uh, we are a church family. Speaking of, uh, some of you came in this morning and may have been going to a class during the second service before coming to the third and noticed the paramedics and the fire department were here. Uh, we had a member of our church um, uh, get lighthearted and go down, uh, Clayton Shelburne, 95 years young, uh, and a beloved member of our congregation here. And uh, because we're a church family, it's not a production, I want to bring that before you and uh, ask you to pray here in just a moment, recognizing that there's a lot going on in a lot of our lives. But many of you saw that when you walked in. And uh, he's stable. He's at the hospital. Uh, but we want to just spend a moment praying for him, uh, thanking God for the joy he brings to our congregation for many, many years now. Um, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into the sermon. Father, I thank you uh, for the church family. It was really, really neat to see so many with medical experience and the careers you've gifted them with jump in to help Clayton this morning. And for our local um, firefighters and EMTs that arrived and helped him and to see that he was doing good. Um, and just pray for uh, healing for him, God, that you would comfort any fear that he is feeling right now and just help remind him that you're present with him and that he's got a church family that loves him. And we'll trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Jamie Winship, I was introduced to his work a few uh, weeks ago. He was a former police officer. And for the longest time as a young kid, that's all he ever wanted to do was to be a police officer. So as he grew older, that's exactly what ended up happening. He became uh, uh, an officer in the D.C. metro area. He was a beat cop. And what was interesting, though, is that he uh, has a strong faith and mixed that with the calling to be a police officer. And he operated slightly different than many of the officers around him. So much so uh, that the State Department in the U.S. took interest in the work that he was doing as your regular everyday police officer. It's pretty fascinating. In fact, they wanted to come and interview him to come and work for them because of how unique and uh, how much progress the results spoke for themselves. And so they came to interview him. And while interviewing him, um, he wanted to know, why are you interested in me? I'm just a police officer. It's because of the results. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, let's give you an example. You work in this particular area, in this neighborhood, and there's a notorious drug dealer, a drug kingpin of sorts, who operates in that same place. Once you started working on that beat, when you started working in that area, over a period of time, uh, that went away. And we want to know why. And he said, you're not going to like my answer. And they said, that's kind of the point. We want to figure out how are you doing this so unique. And he said, well, my wife and I invited that drug dealer to live in our home for a few days. <laughs> that's not normal cop work, all right? That's not how the police normally operate, all right? But he said, what happened is we invited this young man to come into our home and began to redirect his identity, recognized he had some gifts that God had given to him. And these gifts that God had given to him, he had this entrepreneurial mind. And I told him, you are incredibly gifted in thinking business, but you're pointing that gift into something that's very unhealthy and bad because you're scared to put it into the hard work of doing something good with it. And over time, developed a relationship with him and the drug dealing went down in the neighborhood. Well, he, began, he, took the work, he took the job. The State Department really wanted him to come work for them, and so he did. He went and he did the work, and they sent him all over the world. 
And they put him into these different environments, some of them very hostile, and he had to help people negotiate and understand and see things, and he didn't shy away from it. He said, the reason I'm good at this is because I go into a situation, I look at the Bible, and I see what wisdom does God's word give me into figuring out this situation that you want me to come into and help with. And he did that for 27 some odd years. Well, when he was retired, he was surveying some of all of his work and his experiences. He was asked some of the things he learned. One of the things he said was, one of the things I've noticed is all around the world, regardless of where I was, who I was working with, or how intense the situation was, every person I encountered, with the exception of very, very few, operated with what he identified as what's called a separation worldview. He said, everybody, it's so rare to find someone who did not have a separation worldview. And here's how he defined it. And I want you to do me a favor. Think about your life when you hear this description of the way so many people around the entire world that he encountered operated their life. Think about this. He says this, there was a separation worldview. It's built on scarcity. There's not enough land, not enough money, not enough pleasure, not enough spots on the team, not enough jobs in the company. Fill in the blank. So... Because there's not enough, we have to compete for what there is. And so immediately, whatever the area of life that you're in, you immediately position yourself in competition with somebody else to get what little there is of whatever it is you're going after. And so we operate in that scarcity mindset that generates fear. Now, here's what my brain went to when I read that and I hear that. This scarcity mindset generates a fear in us, but it's twofold in my opinion, as I've seen it in my life. You see, people are scared that there's not enough of something, so they need to go after it, and they need to go get it. So I'm going to work hard. I'm going to position myself. I'm going to compete. I have to get that. Fill in the blank. Again, position, money, pleasure, whatever it is you're going after. But I think it also generates fear because we've rooted so much of our identity in that pursuit that who am I going to be if I don't get it? I don't know who I am without this thing that I've been pursuing with everything in my life. And what I've observed is this happens really, really young. And he, he actually identifies this too in his work. This happens young. We put this mindset, this separation worldview into our children at a very, very young age because that's how we were raised too. Think about it. I'll give you a couple examples here. How long does it take after you have your first child before you hear this? Well, they're in the 85th percentile for height and weight, <laughs> right? And immediately... You're like, all right, this is how they stack up against everybody else, right? But then what happens if they come and they say, well, they're in the 50th percentile. And then immediately you're thinking, now what happens? And now every decision I make as a parent is rooted in the fear of getting that number up as I compare my child to other children to make sure they stack up. I've seen this in sports. My kids like sports. Did you know that they start ranking athletes as early as the sixth grade in this country? College coaches are looking for athletes in whatever sport as early as the sixth grade. So you're ranked. And when an athlete learns about this ranking, not even the fact that they're ranked, all of their mindset around this sport, this game, this game that they were playing, becomes an obsession about that ranking. Whether or not I can get on the ranking, if I'm already ranked, how do I climb that ranking? And I want to know everything about the person who is. Our children can't even play a game anymore without measuring how they stack up against other people. It's just in everything. We rank the top 30 leaders under 30 years old, at least in this city. Every year, it's published. The top 40 leaders under the age of 40, every year. 
let alone what we do on social media when we look at our devices and we sign online and we measure everything about what we're doing, how many likes, how many people recognize it. And not all of that is horrible, but it's horrible when it becomes consuming and it operates us. We are a competitive people. And from an early age, we're taught to compete for the scarcity of what there actually is for us. And there's nothing new about this. This has been going on forever. Mark chapter 10, Jesus has this interesting conversation with two of his disciples. These two brothers, James and John, they'll later be called the sons of thunder, which I love that description. I feel like some of the fights me and my brother got in, we could have been called that, right? These sons of thunder, these two brothers that are following Jesus, they've been following him for a long time. They've listened to his teaching. They've watched the miracles. They've been amazed, like we said last week, at the authority with which he taught God's word. And they could sense that Jesus was a revolutionary because Jesus was a revolutionary. But in their mind, Jesus was going to bring a revolution in the physical world by overthrowing the Roman government. And they could sense something's coming. And so in Mark chapter 10, they approach Jesus. And they don't ask. They approach Jesus with a statement. And they say this, Jesus, we want you to give us whatever we ask for. I've had moments where I felt bold in my life. And I've probably put my foot in my mouth at times as well. Don't let that be lost on you. You've maybe read that a hundred times in your life if you follow Jesus. And you're just like, yeah, okay, that's what they said. But like, think about that. They're coming to Jesus and saying, hey, give us whatever we want. Now, Jesus doesn't scold them, which I find fascinating. He's like, all right, what do you want? They're like, well, when you come into your kingdom, which we think is coming soon when you overthrow Rome, we, one of us at your right hand, one of us at your left hand. And here's what they're asking. They're saying, we don't want to just be disciples. We want to be the disciples. Because we compare ourselves and our status against one another in this group of followers of yours. And we want to make sure that we're at the top. Because we don't know who we'll be if we're not in charge. Because for us, it's been all about this position, this platform, this power that could come our way. And Jesus doesn't scold them, maybe because they were bold enough to ask for what they wanted. But he does redirect their identity. He does. That's that separation worldview. He comes in and he redirects the way they think about life. With this statement, he says this, you have no idea what you're asking for. I think he could have said, you don't know who you are. Why? He begins to explain. He says, because when it comes to leadership and my kingdom, it's going to involve suffering. It's going to involve sacrifice and serving. It's not about the position, the title, the role that you have. You need to see that it's more about who you're becoming less about what you're doing, but when you figure out who you're becoming, it'll impact everything that you're doing. He goes on to explain, and I I quoted from Matthew's gospel last week, a part of what Jesus says here. We're in Mark's gospel now, chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus gathers everybody up after this bold request that's made of him. It's a teaching moment. And he says, you know that those who were regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, last week I mentioned that the leadership ethic of Jesus is service, and he modeled it and taught it. He didn't just live it out. He actually said, this is what it means to lead. He says, I have come to serve others, not be served by others. And so leadership in his kingdom is about what you give to other people. That's 
how he describes leadership. But here he adds something else to it in Mark's gospel. There's these four words that change everything. And he uses an example and he says this. He says, you know how leadership is done in the world around you guys. Just pay attention. The Gentiles, these leaders, they have authority. They get the position they've worked so hard for. They've competed their whole life to get to that ranking, that position, that power. And they lord it over everybody under them. Why? Because they don't want to lose it. Why? Because they don't know who they are without it. And then he uses these four words that might be worth committing to your memory. He says, not so with you. Not so with you. The way the rest of the world does this, the way that the rest of the world operates, the way the rest of the world pursues their identity and what they're doing, not so with you. Instead, for you, it's all about who you're becoming and what you're giving away in your life. This is really important because for the last three weeks in this larger study of the pastoral epistles, we've honed in on uh, life within the household of God, right? In chapter 3, next week, we're going to be bringing in a professor from Ozark Christian College. He's going to be here to finish out chapter 3 for us. Um, and, and he'll address uh, the passage that says, this is how people should conduct themselves in the household of God. So that's our context that Paul's writing to this young pastor, Timothy, in the city of Ephesus. And he says to him, I want you to know this is how people should live within God's household, within the church family. And he starts out and he says, this is how men should conduct themselves in God's family. And this is how women should conduct themselves in God's family. And those who are called to lead God's family, the elders, those men that are called to be in that position, here's what their life should look like. And today he's going to say, and here's what this role of deacon should look like within the household of God. And I want you to notice, we're going to look at some of the similarities in this passage between what he said last week and what he said this week, but the emphasis is the same. Rarely, if at all, when describing what it looks like to lead in God's church, will the author describe tasks. They don't get into the role, they get into the character. Here's what the life of the leader, not the role of the leader, should look like. I want you to pay attention to that as we read it, because you learn discipleship to Jesus, leading in his kingdom, in his church, is more about who you are, not as much, though it is still vitally important, what you do. And so we're going to read today, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 8. Paul continues this way. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect. Sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who, are, who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. And this is God's word. You can be seated. Now, um, again, we'll finish chapter 3 next week. But for today, I want to keep this passage as simple as I can. There are three questions I want us to ask that are going to help us get at the passage we just read. Partially, I want to keep it simple because of how long I preached last week. we got to get into it, okay, this week. Um, first question that I would ask of this passage is this. Who are the deacons? And how do they relate to the elders? We talked about elders last week. And now Paul's going to describe this other role that based on verse 10 that we just read is a set-aside role. It is. So it is a specific role that you serve in the local church. 
The group we talked about last week, the elders or episcopi in the Greek language, this group of leaders are a group of men that are set aside. The Bible will use language that leads us to ordaining them. So you ordain an elder into a position of authority. And their responsibility is to lead and care for the church and oversee all of the teaching of God's word within the congregation. Teaching and authority, they're called to care and love the congregation. In that role of authority, they are then called to commission the second role that we're talking about today, which is the role of deacon. Deacons serve in a serving role of the church. The elders in their authority have specific needs in the congregation that they then ask the deacons to fulfill, which leads us to this idea of what a deacon is, like who are they? The word in your New Testament that's used for deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, okay? The reason I say that is this. That word is used 29 times in your New Testament, 29 times. Four of those 29 times, four of 29 times, that word is used to describe the specific role of the deacon, the set-aside role of deacon. Those four times, one of the four is debatable about whether or not contextually it's being used to talk about the role, and that's Romans chapter 16, verse 1, where it's talking about Phoebe. Was she or was she not given the role? We don't know that word contextually that's debatable. The other one, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul's introducing himself and talking to the elders and the deacons of the church. And then you have the other two of the four that are right here in 1 Timothy 3, what we just read. I say that for this reason. Because the other times, right? So 29 minus 4 is what? Here we go. All right. Second, third service were better. And first service, I was like, man, I went to Bible college. I can do that kind of math, okay? 25 other times that that word is used in your New Testament. It simply means serving. That's it, to serve. So you have four times it's used to talk about this specific role. 25 times it's used simply to describe the everyday life of a Christian as being one who serves or ministers to the needs of others. So we're very limited when we're talking about the role of deacon and the word being used to identify the role of a deacon in a congregation. I still think it is a set-aside role based on verse 10. They're to be tested, and if everything checks out, then they're to be put in this position or this role. The question becomes, where did the role come from? Some people believe it came from Acts chapter 6. If you've read through your New Testament in Acts 6, the new church is starting. There's this movement going. There's a lot of excitement. There's all these needs. And the apostles, those very unique role of apostle, are charged with getting this whole thing started. And there's some widows in the early church who are not being taken care of and cared for. They can't have the time to meet all of those needs. So they bring in a group. They say, hey, among you, find men who are worthy to come in and they're going to help us take care of these widows so we can pay attention to the teaching and prayer ministries in the church. And so some people will say, hey, that's where this came from. The, the issue I have with that is just being honest. I want to be very honest with the text. The issue I have with that is nowhere is the role of deacon described in Acts chapter 6. It's not described as a role. On top of that, it's the apostles that are asking for that need to be met, not the local elders of the church. So the local church elders are not the ones that are instituting this. It's the apostles in that moment. So I don't think that that's necessarily exactly what to do, but it has become and should be a model for what the churches ended up doing. Finding specific needs that specific people can meet and putting those people into those roles. Okay, so it's really important. Now, it tells us this. What should never happen 
it, it does happen in a lot of churches, is you have the elders, as we understand the relationship between the deacons and the elders, right? That's our first question. You have the elders that are leading. In many churches, they'll institute deacons in a parallel position of authority to the elders as a way of doing a checks and balances on the elders, like the Senate or Congress, right? Which is the only place that that should be instituted because it's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible are deacons put in a position of authority to provide checks and balances to the eldership. That's just not it. They serve underneath the authority of the elders, and they are commissioned to service. So I say all that to say this. The deacons are a commissioned role of service, not an ordained role of authority. They're a commissioned role of service, not an ordained role of authority. They serve under the authority of the elders. So then the next question becomes then, okay, so if that's it, and it is a specific role, we've said that, who or what is required of deacons? So like who can actually serve as a deacon? What is it that's required of them? And Paul lays some of that out here. And I love the way he does this in this passage because he doesn't do what we want him to do. <laughs> what he wants, what we want him to do is a job description, right? Tell me exactly what has to be done. And that's not what he's doing. He's describing the type of person that the elders can trust to fulfill the specific role that they have for them. And there's a lot of similarities between the two. Like if you notice when he describes the elders in the first seven verses, he says they should be faithful in marriage. That word that's used there, and I think I kind of misspoke a little bit last week or didn't intend to emphasize. Here's what I meant. Last week, all the word means when he's describing the elders and the deacons is this. It's a monogamous, faithful marriage. One man and one woman married. That's all he's speaking of when he says that word. If you take that definition of marriage that's communicated in that word and place it within the context of the New Testament, you then get the idea of how that marriage should look. And that marriage should be two people that care for one another right? That a husband loves and cares for his wife doesn't just meet the requirement. We're still married, right? We got the old lady. Like, uh, like, no, like all of that's horrible. That's not what's being communicated in your scriptures. It's this loving, caring relationship that's described, not just let's stay married as long as we can. So that's similar. He says the deacons have to have that same type of marriage. He also says you should be really careful. He said they should be very, they should apply wisdom, he says, to alcohol which is fascinating to me. Anytime that Paul talks about a set-aside role that's going to have influence in the church, not even leadership, because there's no leadership given to the deacons, authority, and yet they're still set aside with a specific role to fulfill, and with the elders, in both positions, he says they need to be wise with alcohol because he understands how quickly drinking alcohol and allowing that to be a part of your life can destroy your life. We said last week, integrity can take years to build and moments to destroy. And he says the same thing is true for the deacons. They have to be wise in their interactions with alcohol. Imposing that on us again, like I think the church in today's culture isn't careful enough with it. He then says, it's very similarly, they cannot pursue dishonest gain. Meaning someone who wants to serve in the role of a deacon has to have integrity with money. Yes, they're generous and they're tithing and all of that, but they're also not going about getting money and wealth through dishonest means. They have integrity and character when it comes to the use of their money. And then it also says they have to have a love for the scriptures and the truth, very similar to the elders. The elders must love the truth. They must love God's word. Here's the difference, though. The elders are commanded not just to love God's word, but be able to teach it. Exercising that teaching authority, the deacons are not required to teach it. Can they? Sure, if the elders want them to, right? And they meet the requirements. 
But it's not a requirement of being a deacon to be able to teach. All that's required is a deep love for the scriptures. So in short, who, you know, what is required of the deacons? A thriving relationship with Jesus that's actually transforming your life and a desire to say yes when a specific need is presented by the elders to serve in a specific role. Which means, what about verse 11, Rob? What about the women? The question we're all wondering now is, can a woman serve in the role of a deacon, right? That's, that's the question that comes up quite often. And this is honestly like a, an issue of debate with a lot of different people. And after a lot of study, and I cannot emphasize how much I can, like a lot of diving in and studying, I want to address the word that he uses for women there in verse 11. What he says, when he says women, the question becomes, right, is he speaking of the wives of the deacons or is he speaking of women in general? I think an honest look at that word, the way it's used here in 1 Timothy, the way it's used in other contexts, the conclusion is he's speaking of the wives of the deacons. That's who he's talking about. So not only should a deacon's character look this way, but his wife's character, he needs to be developing and pouring into her as well. Now, I think it's because they were probably serving alongside their husbands, which brings us to the next question. Is this then saying that a woman cannot serve as a deacon? I think an honest study of the text would lead you to say, no, that is not what it's saying. It's not saying that a woman is not allowed to serve in the role of a deacon. I don't think that's what the text says based on quite a bit of study. But I also don't think that's the point. I don't think that's the point of the passage. And when we try to make it the point, like we've got to have this type of person serving, I think we fall into the separation worldview where we say it has to look this way. And if it doesn't look this way exactly how I want, then I don't know how I'm going to operate. I don't know what it's going to be like. But that's not the point. What's the point? The point of the passage is whoever's asked under the authority of the elders to serve in a specific capacity of deacon has to have this type of character. They have to have a thriving relationship with Jesus, something that they're constantly investing in, something that is constantly filling them up, and they're serving from the overflow of that relationship with Jesus. Which brings us to the next question, right? So actually, let me, let me, actually, let me just say this. Well, no, we'll tie it into this question. All right, here we go. All right, third question. What do deacons do? Now you're getting a live brain right here, okay? <laughs> what do deacons do is the third question. We don't know. Anyone who's like, this is exactly what they do, facilities. I don't think I've ever read facilities in the Bible. Like, that, really. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing, and I love it. I think it's on purpose. He never says, here's the specific tasks that the deacons have to do, which drives some of us nuts because we're like, we want to know exactly what they're supposed to do, so we put them in that role, and everything feels, and it's all neat and clean. But that's not the point. What's the point? The point is this. Under the authority of the elders, when a need presents itself in a congregation, and the reason I think he doesn't give us specifics is that those needs change to every congregation. Every congregation is going to have different needs arise at different times in the life of the church. Given the context you're in, given what's going on around, what does this congregation need here at New Hope? We have specific needs that come up that might not be the same at the church that you grew up at. But then later on, we might have that same need of the church that you grew up at present itself at New Hope. And the point wasn't, here's exactly what they do. The point is, here's who they are. So now the elders, and here's, here's the key. An elder is called to be a shepherd. Elders that drift into a boardroom and are incapable of shepherding and knowing their congregation will have a hard time with the role of deacon because you have to be among the people to know the needs of the people in the congregation. 
So as an elder shepherds and cares for, here's what happens. A need pops up. And because they know the congregation well, they say, well, here's somebody in the church. And let's put it to the test. Does their character line up? First Timothy 3. Yeah, their character lines up. Has God given them gifts? Yes, God's gifted them to be able to meet this need. So now we approach. Say, hey, we have the specific need. It may last this long and it may last this long, but we have a specific need and we need to set you aside to meet that need so that the elders can focus on shepherding the people and caring about the teaching of God's word. And so as the need presents itself, the elders exercise the authority and commission the specific people to serve in the specific roles. Two things before we close out. What I've observed about this is this. There are specific tasks that will rise up and there are specific people that will meet those needs in the life of a church. There absolutely is. And I read here, I'm like, okay, when that need arises, will we have people who have been investing in the character development necessary to meet that need? That's what a church family does. The second thing is this. The description of character development here is not simply for those who are ordained or or commissioned into a specific role. Remember, whether you're one of the four uses of the word and you have this specific role that for a specific season God asks you to serve in, or you're one of the 25 uses, meaning you're a Christian who follows Jesus and you're going to be a servant. You're going to give your life away for the benefit of other people. Whether you're in either one of those camps, this is the type of character that God needs to be able to develop inside your heart. And you can't be pursuing a role or an authority or a title and develop this character at the same time. The separation worldview will make it impossible for you to humble yourself enough to be developed by God, to be prepared to serve the way he wants you to serve. So let's say it this way. God is absolutely concerned with what you do with your life. He is. Anyone who would stand up and say, God cares more about who you are and not about what you're doing. That's not true. Discipleship actually requires that you do something. So God is absolutely concerned with what you do in your life, but he's far more concerned with who you're becoming and the way your life is being shaped and the way your character is being developed. 1 Timothy 3, man, I don't know about you, but it's definitely convicted me that God wants the type of person that they need, that, that he needs to serve the church with the needs they have. And the question becomes, are we becoming that type of person? This past week, I was, uh, my daughter had a basketball game. It was about an hour away. We were driving home from that game. We uh, usually get to have some good conversations on those longer drives. And while we were driving home, the issue of spiritual gifts came up. And we were talking through spiritual gifts in the church. And one of the things I was reminded of is this truth, that every time a spiritual gift is mentioned in your New Testament, the emphasis is never on the person with the gift, always on the recipients of that gift. Meaning, when spiritual gifts are talked about in the New Testament, It's more about the people you serve with that gift than it is you developing that gift for your own potential and purpose. The emphasis is on the people that you're serving always. What gifts God has given to me, I want to use to bless the people he's called me to. The other thing that I was reminded of this week was an illustration that my father-in-law taught us years ago in a staff meeting. And, and he described this, and I've just never been able to forget it. And I think, man, 1 Timothy 3, this is what it's talking about. And he said, you have this idea of godliness. And you have this life. So you come to church on Sunday, and you hear a sermon, right? It's good. You're like, okay, it's good. I'm going to go. And then maybe you don't do anything that week. So you come back the next Sunday, and you get a little bit more of 
God's character development through the work of the Spirit and the power of his word going into your life. And you're like, okay, that's good, a little bit. And then the next week you're like, man, I didn't do anything. Well, actually, yeah, I did. Okay, I read the verse of the day on the Bible app, which that's not bad, that's good. And I listened to like two songs on Caleb. So like there's that, right? So like I'm, man, I'm doing it, right? I came back to church and like I listened to another sermon. But, but you're not doing the hard work of letting God pour into you. You're not actually developing a deep love for the word of God as it's transforming your life, which would be a painful process. He said the life of the Christian is about developing that character, putting the right things inside because every single Christian's life is like a bucket with a hole in it. And there's constantly needs in the church and in your life that are going to require the godly character for you to meet the needs that God's calling you to. And if you're not pouring godly character in, eventually it runs dry. And you got nothing left to offer anybody. And people get burned out of their church and their relationship with Jesus. They deconstruct. They walk away. Because the whole time, the life of Christian discipleship is a life of serving. Paul will use the language, I pour out my life like a drink offering. So the question becomes whether you're going to be called to serve in one of the four uses in a specific role of deacon or it's one of the 25 where you're a follower of Jesus called to serve everyone around you. What is it that you're allowing to be poured into your life? What's influencing you more than anything else? Because what goes in, it will come out. So for you, is it a role, a position, an authority, a platform? Is it people liking you and looking at you and admiring you? Or is it not so with you? Not so with you. And instead, is it Jesus transforming your heart in an everyday process, every single day, transforming who you're becoming so that you're ready to go anywhere and you're ready to do anything to serve his kingdom? because of the transformation he's brought about in your life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. God, I thank you that he saved us, but he also gave us this beautiful model for what it looks like to be trusted, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be equipped by the word of God, to be people who pour out our lives as drink offerings for the benefit of everyone else around us. That's our hope, God, but we need your help. We need to be reminded constantly of the sacrifice you made for us so that we're willing from the overflow of our understanding and the transformation that comes from that sacrifice to sacrifice ourselves for others. So God, whether we're called to a specific role in the church or we're just serving in general, we want to glorify Jesus. And God, if we are called to serve in a specific role in the church, whatever that role is, would you help remind us that you've entrusted something to us for a season. Seasons have beginnings and they have ends. And that season is to be stewarded for your glory and not our own. May we be a people, a church family, where it's not so with us. And instead, we would give of ourselves for the benefit of others. And we'll trust you for this in Jesus' name.